Hello and welcome to this podcast brought to you by Just, the UK's first enforcement market integrator, and Aram, which has been helping organisations to prevent and resolve problem debt for over 25 years, with me, your host Steve Coppard. In this series, we'll be shining a light on issues that impact the debt industry by discussing topics as diverse as numeracy, illegal money lending and behavioural insights. It's time to grab a cuppa as we give credit where credit's due to our expert guests. For this episode, I headed over to East London to meet Muni Yassin, MBE from Rooted Finance. The last census showed that about one in five people in England and Wales are from a black, Asian, mixed or other non-white background. In terms of know your customer, I had this inkling that if there were invisible cultural differences that most of us weren't aware of, then it could make interpreting the data harder. And under consumer duty, deepening our knowledge of diverse ethnic communities could be a critical factor to achieving good outcomes. Quite frankly, as a middle-aged white guy living in a predominantly white village in Kent, I soon realised that this topic was beyond any credible desk-based research I could do. But I also figured that that made it even more important for somebody with my background to put my hand up and say, hey, I don't know enough about this, can you help me to understand it? Muna really brought the subject to life, talking me through some of the stats, the ethnicity premium, the need for more research, and how collaboration between specialist advice agencies, financial institutions, collections and recoveries, and the regulators could lead to lower costs and better debt outcomes for all. So let's dive straight in now and listen to Muna's expertise on this subject. So, Muna. Hi, I'm Muna Yassin. I'm the CEO of Rooted Finance, and we are a East London-based community-embedded specialist debt advice organisation. And what we have done is work with individuals in East London and across London now since 2001. And what we do is support people to focus on their financial futures whilst they're going through a crisis. So really ensuring people are able to have that horizon view, even though they might be going through a horrible crisis. So it's about providing that support, providing that hope and ensuring people are able to take those steps going forward. What are some of the sorts of crises that you face on a daily, weekly basis? Oh, they're ever increasing, Steve, at the moment. So typically you'll have people who are coming in who have no food and who have exhausted all areas of support and they are in a position of what we would now call near destitution. And what tends to happen is there has been a, either a system error because of their, their kind of universal credit has been delayed or they are out of work or they have very low income and their day-to-day costs have just spiralled. And so sometimes that could mean that they have lots of debts that they're unable to serve but also there are issues around people don't have enough coming in to be able to live on, in a kind of dignified way. What what are you able to do for people in those sort of situations? So I'm very lucky that I have a great team who are very determined <laughs> and very committed so what we tend to do is kind of a understand what the emergency issue is um, so that could be we need to issue a food bank voucher we need to issue a fuel voucher um, whatever financial assistance that we can get out the door as quickly as possible the second phase is looking at what their income looks like and what their expenditure looks like so really understanding their financial circumstances and actually a lot of the time there are underlying issues so it could be other linked 
welfare needs that are causing this. So thinking about issues around housing, immigration, potentially health issues. So really understanding those needs and bringing that support in to help that individual. And so there are lots of things that we can do immediately. We can put people on breathing space. We can ensure that people have their income protected. So lots of people think there is nothing that can be done, even in those dire circumstances. But I would always encourage people to talk, access the support that's available to you, because there are things that can be done, despite how bad it looks. Is there a common theme of people just hit the wall? Have they racked up a lot of debt by the time they get to you? So traditionally at Rooted Finance, because we work with diverse ethnic communities, you see some entrenched issues because of the complex needs that they have and also because of some of the inequalities and barriers that they face that the rest of the population don't have to. But increasingly we're starting to see because of the cost of living crisis and because of what's happened with the pandemic. So all of those things compounded have meant that people who you wouldn't typically expect to have any difficulties now find themselves in completely new scenarios and situations. And we're seeing a lot more people who are younger, a lot more people who are in private rented accommodation. And especially in London, the rents are astronomical. And when you add everything else in, it's very easy to see how people can quickly fall into debt. But also we're starting to see people who have had savings, but have used them over the last few years. And, and that resource has now completely dried up. And they're now in a position where they're finding themselves also racking up debt. So a lot of the debt is priority debt, sadly. The essentials, rent, utilities, but we're also starting to see lots of buy now, pay later, which I'm sure other organisations are starting to see because of the, the kind of expansion to being able to use it for essential items um, and not just luxury items as people would assume. So I was very much aware of the impact of the pandemic on diverse ethnic communities that many people worked in industries that were shut down and I saw as well we looked at some of the cultural differences. I think 29% of Bangladeshi men were in a household that was working but without a partner working yet only one percent of white men faced exactly the same situation yeah and that speaks to the kind of complex multi-layered differences that you will see within the population so to give you some context we've served over twenty-three thousand londoners since 2001 but over the years as a as a woman of color myself and who's leading an organization that is providing debt advice which is not that common it's always irked me that actually the predominant of our clients are from minority communities and there doesn't seem to be a focus on that so over 60 percent of our clients come from and who identify as non-white british and actually it's the women who are most affected in that community we're seeing that around 60 to 65 percent of our clients and it's always fluctuated are from the female gender but also thinking about some of the the issues that you mentioned around employment so looking at the data we're part of a debt-free advice network in London which provides obviously access to support across London and the data from our 22-23 shows that actually in comparison to the rest of the population in the total average people from black communities are accessing our services at 32 percent when actually their 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 kind of uh, census data shows that they're 13.5 percent of the population and that's huge and so when you think about also black and black British people are more likely to be seeking work compared to the the average they also are more likely to be in social housing they also are more likely to have rent arrears and council tax arrears already you can see that there are specific 
issues and needs that are different to the rest of the population and the approaches and solutions should also factor that in. So absolutely, I think there are there are things that we can think about that are not applicable to the rest of the community. And if we want to have solutions that are effective, we need to provide support that takes into account those cultural differences. You mentioned as well, Ren, looking where we are with the changes to regulations for buy-to-let landlords, the increase in mortgage payments that they're facing, the tax changes as well. We've obviously seen a shrinking market in the rental sector. And I saw recently a statistic that said demand for rented accommodation between January 22 and January 23 was 46% above average demand. And that had driven prices up in the rental market by 11.1% across the board. But actually, in some hotspots, you were looking at maybe the rents tripling. Yeah. And and it's not something new in London, sadly. And I think one of the things that we've always seen, it, and actually it's now hitting the wider population, but actually if you're, if you're from an excluded community or a marginalised community, you've had the issue of overcrowding for years, where families have adult children who can't afford to be able to either buy or go into the rental market. This is now widening out to the wider population because of the cost of living crisis. And I think there are some fundamental policy issues. As a society, we need to make a, a decision around, is housing a luxury or is it a right, number one? <laughs> but also we need to ensure that there are um, protections in place and support in place where there are people being exploited. We hear some horror stories we have clients who have effectively no contracts, no written contracts. They are living in shared accommodations. They have no protections whatsoever because it's the only type of accommodation that they can afford. And so I think there are issues around making sure that we drive out bad behaviour and are there ways that we can increase access to social housing, the, the number of social housing that's available, but also the whole rent controls and the market in itself has to be looked at. That strikes me as quite synergistic with the where do we draw the line on subprime lending because then you start getting into illegal money lending and it, it feels like wherever there's a gap between where the regulation stops and where real people's lives are hitting the wall that there's an element of exploitation that will take place in that space. Absolutely if, if there's a gap in the market as it were and that's a really horrible phrase to use but that's how people will look at it they will start coming up with solutions to provide something that fits that gap. For years we've had sheds in the back garden that have been repurposed for housing for people that are undocumented. We've had issues around people being exploited, paying deposits, they think they're paying deposits, when in actual fact there is no contract. So I definitely think when you look at some of the practices that are happening in the illegal money lending team and actually the, the reluctance to talk about people using loan sharks, there is also culturally a reluctance to talk about some of the exploitation that's happening because it's primarily somebody from your own community that's giving you access to that house or to that shed or to that room. And it's through those networks that people access what they think is support, but in actual fact, is exploitation. That's very similar to the conversation I had with Kath Wallace from the illegal money lending team, where she was saying communities, migrant communities in the UK, and, and she mentioned a, a couple have you know, WhatsApp group set up ostensibly under the guise of being able to talk to people who have the same interests, the same background, the same knowledge as you. But actually those groups are often exploited by members of those communities and it may be one bad apple in the whole lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the 
the whole phenomena of social media as a, as a source for uh, trusted information drives me insane. So we have this saying that do not listen to the aunties on WhatsApp when it comes to financial advice. And I think there's something around actually using those spaces that people are comfortable in. That in itself is a, a learning factor for the organisations that are supporting people in this space. You have to go to where people are and you have to go to where people are comfortable. So there's a learning curve for organisations around how do you provide information to people through trusted sources to ensure that they're not being exploited and they're not taking forward advice that is incorrect or exploitative. You've got the whole issue of people having real financial needs that are outside the finance sector. So if you think about people looking after people back home and remittances and having to ensure that they budget for that and that's sent because they have a duty and a, and a responsibility to either children, parents, and, and these are real financial commitments that are not acknowledged within our financial services sector. So people will then hide that and then they will go to different extremes to ensure that that's not captured, which then drives the opportunity for exploitation. But also it means that organisations who are supporting those people who don't know about those things, when you're faced with somebody who's coming to you with a negative budget, has debts, but at the same time is insisting that they send $100 home every single month, they will try and hide that from a place of good intentions, but actually sometimes being uninformed. And then that what that does is it masks the issue. The creditors don't learn about people's behaviours and habits and needs and then can't provide a culturally appropriate response. So I think there's something around actually the more that we're transparent around what people's behaviours are and what their needs are and the differences and nuances around that, the more that the credit sector and the kind of debt sector can respond appropriately and effectively. Back in the early 80s, my dad went to work. He was a builder. He went to work in, in Germany, did the whole rule feed or something bet thing. But he went there because there was no work in the UK. There were well-paid jobs in Germany. The Germany was crying out for people at that stage. But if you had suggested to him that he couldn't send money back home, that was his whole purpose for being there. Exactly. And, and I think there's something around every community has their ways of being able to meet their responsibilities. And it depends on what circumstances that you're in. Um, so I think that's a great example, Steve, actually. And I, I guess... I mean, we in the debt management industry, we're getting more and more comfortable in the private sector, certainly, at using WhatsApp and Viber and apps that are the ways that people want to engage these days. I mean, uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know where you are with it, Moon. I don't like talking on the phone anymore. <laughs> I, I've, I've somehow lost that skill. I'd much rather get a WhatsApp yeah. and, and be able to put the funds up back. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's something around our regulators and our key funders in the sector and, and the industry itself recognising how the world is evolving and how communication is evolving. So within the debt advice sector, we're always debating the length and breadth of the advice letters that are, are required to be sent out. And if you are in a vulnerable situation or you have a language issue or you have a um, mental health issue or you're just so stressed that you don't have the bandwidth to deal with the amount of demands that are coming through, having a 60-page letter through your door, giving out all the different options that are available to you is actually counterproductive. 60 pages. There are organisations that are sending out 60 page letters and they're doing that to make sure that they, they meet the regulations around Kong and obviously consumer duties coming in so that will hopefully help change some of those practices. But I think there's something around we as an industry and as regulators that support that industry have to then think about how we support consumers to understand 
and to digest quite complex information, but it can be broken down in a way that they understand without having to have 60 page letters. That's absolutely shocking. I don't think I've ever received a 60 page letter in my life. I don't even think I've, I've received terms and conditions that were 60 pages long. I probably have if I, if I bothered to read the online ones, but so, I mean, I, I had a, I had a, a conversation with Ben Perkins down at Plain Numbers uh, and he mentioned actually, you know, 40 plus page letters as well. And I, I see some of the work also that Minesh Patel is doing over at Amplify Global. And I mean, Minesh is working in the FCA sandbox at the moment. We've got consumer duty saying that you have to present information in a way that is easy for customers to understand. And actually, you're responsible for making sure that it's intelligible to people. And yet, somehow, the regulation is driving out 40 to 60 page letters. And, and this is why I say sometimes there has to be collaboration across the sector, because there are things that regulators want to provide protections around consumers, which is great, and we're in the same boat. But actually, there are sometimes unintended consequences from some of these policies. So having that community-led approach to solutions ensures that everything is put through a lived experience lens, a real-life lens. So it's really putting that policy into practice and what happens. And I think the more that we can ensure that organisations like Rooted Finance and others are able to collaborate with those that are making those types of decisions, I think the more that we can find solutions that work in the real world, like you say, and we're not having people having 40 page letters. And I think the work that Plain Numbers are doing and obviously Amplify is really, really important. But also I would encourage organisations to, to really come down, have a look how it happens in practice as well. You mentioned savings as well. And the last financial life survey that I, I read from the FCA mentions that post-pandemic a lot of people were already getting to the point where they were uncomfortable with their bills but had built up significant savings through the pandemic and and they were now reliant on those for paying the bills and i, re I remember thinking at the time that's that's a finite pot you, yeah. you you know that if there's a negative budget that's being supported by by savings that it is going to run out that bubble's going to burst what what sort of sense are you getting of the sort of numbers of how how that's happening in the client group that we work with, I would say about 80% to 90% have no savings at all that are visible to us. And I say visible to us because there is this stat that says that 60% of diverse ethnic communities have no savings at all in the UK. I actually don't believe that stat because of the fact that there are different ways that some of our, our communities save that are not within the financial system and nobody's actually capturing. So if you think about some of the traditional savings clubs, people are saving and they are using that for not only buffers, but also to build assets. And these are things like Hubbards in the Somali community, you've got partner. So these are well known. So, and it, actually it's where the credit unions came out. So it's like mutual mutuals and having a circle that lends to each other and everybody takes out the pot. So there's lots of savings that are not actually visible to us. But in terms of people that are in problem debt that we see, actually I would say around 70% don't have access to savings. And those that did have savings that we're starting to see have actually run out of those savings over the last three years. 
and are now in a position where they're racking up debt. And where people do have savings, they're using them for specific things. So it could be to put a child through a specific additional tutoring, for example. And so there are things that people can't touch because otherwise it, it, it hits their aspirations for their children or they have specific medical needs. So yeah, I think a lot more research needs to be done into that stat. And I think a lot more research needs to be done around actually we're always banging on about people don't know how to save and it's behavioral and financial education and literacy some of the people that we work with have the best financial behaviors they they can budget to the last penny because they've learned how to survive on that but at the same time it's making the assumption that they have no aspirations around their financial futures which they do and they have the skills to do that they just don't have the the funds to be able to apply it so i think there's something around we need to do a bit more research around what's happening in our communities and we need to be able to then come up with solutions that support those aspirations and that support some of those good behaviours already happening. Pat Wallace said something very similar. She said, if you want to see an example of somebody who can budget down to the last penny, look at a loan shark victim because they've lived a life where they have had to. This is why I wanted to come along and talk to you today, Muna, because there are things that I've, I've, I kind of know vaguely are going on, but actually, if we want to give, A, our clients the best chance of getting paid, but B, do it in a responsible way that actually supports the, the, the customer and be balanced about that, then I think we, we have to know about some of the, the issues that we maybe skim over in other ways. Yeah, and I think that's why I was really keen to talk to you, Steve, because I think having that open conversation and a willingness to learn, and we have clients that are willing to talk about their experiences and share their experiences, and I'm grateful to how open they are and how generous they are, because they're very keen to make sure that nobody else goes through the same problem that they've gone through or the, the circumstances they've gone through. But actually, sometimes somebody who's gone through that is the best person to teach you how to stop it or how to come up with a solution. I think there's something around not only capturing that data and kind of shining a light on it, but actually working collaboratively together to come up with those solutions. So we're not one of those organizations that think every creditor or every debt management organization is the bad guy, because there is a place for all of us. And actually there's a responsibility. And most clients that we work with want to pay their debts. They're not avoiding paying their debts. They just can't pay them. Or they can't pay them at this moment in the way that the creditor is asking. So it's about coming up with a, a solution for them that works for their individual circumstances. And I think the more that the, the sector can learn about what are some of the barriers, what are some of the, the cultural nuances, what are some of the, the drivers that are motivating people to behave in certain ways, the more that they can respond accordingly and actually ensure that they're getting sustainable repayments rather than repayments that people can afford for one or two months and then break down and then they start the whole process again. I think one of the things that I was really keen to talk to you about was the ethnicity premium. So we all know about the poverty premium um, and the, the complex barriers that provides to people who have to pay more to access services and goods that you and I probably could get cheaper. But there's an added element. So if you think about if you're from a diverse ethnic community, actually we know that people from black communities are paying £250 more for just their car insurance from the recent data that came out from the CAB and the research that they did. And there's no explanation for that apart from 
their ethnicity. We also know that they are paying higher costs for loans. Sometimes the interest rates are higher. If you look at on paper, anecdotally, their circumstances in comparison to somebody who's not from an ethnic minority. So I think there definitely has to be something that ensures that we're not adding additional costs and barriers to people from minority communities. And when they can't pay, then turning around and saying, actually, they're just in debt because obviously they weren't very good at handling their, their credit or, or their finances. When in actual fact, they went through all of those different issues and barriers in the first place. You said complexity were wrong, were you? <laughs> it is, and we're learning more every day. And I think, I think data, data, data. And I think we also have to be very careful about how we collect that data. It has to be, like I said, with people rather than for people. But there's a piece of work that we've been doing with Fair for All Finance and sponsored by NetWest, really looking at the experiences of minority communities and their experiences with the financial services sector in the UK. Hopefully that will be out in the next month or so. So I think that would be a great starting point for some of the conversations that we want to lead. We're also working and funded by the Racial Justice Fund to really take on some of the, the issues that come out of that and really start to, to collect our own data around what is the ethnicity premium, who are affected, what are the barriers for black and minority communities in the financial services sector. And my ask and my call out to everybody is that we'd love to be able to work with you on this piece of work. And I think the debt sector and the, the debt management sector are part of that solution. And so we would love to have some conversations around that as well. The ethnicity premium, that, that, that just blew my mind a little bit. So if you take two people, exactly the same circumstances, one is white and one is black, and you're charging the black person more, surely that's against the Equality Act. Yeah, absolutely. It is. But actually, who's, who's collecting that data? Who's monitoring it through that racial lens? And obviously, the CAP have done some great work around exposing the ethnicity premium in the insurance sector. And that's just the start of it. So what we want to do and we're working with Jerry and his team at Money Aiding, but I think one of the things that we're very keen to do is to bring the banks and the kind of key players within the financial services sector together to start looking at some of that data. We know that black people are more likely to be declined for personal loans. So why is that? Is that because they don't know how the algorithm works? Is it because there is some bias? So really working out with the banks what, what is actually happening and what's going on, I think is really important. One of the reasons I was really keen to do this is that in the absence of information, I guess there are two broad camps that people can fall into. They can either allow their unconscious bias or pre-held prejudices just to permeate through that decision making if there's no governance around that, or they can treat everybody exactly the same. But from some of the things you've been saying, I, I don't think either of those work. Yeah, and I think it is complex, like you said, and I think it's really understanding, is it an issue where it is unconscious bias, where people are making those decisions based on actually my appetite for risk, I don't know enough about this person or whatever the case may be, or this community is one thing. Is it postcode thing? And so predominantly people from diverse ethnic communities might be in social housing, is it a decision that's being skewed that way? I think we need to know more. And I think it's about once we know more, then how do we protect that unconscious bias seeping into those decisions? How do we protect any digital AI kind of bias by ensuring there's more representation within those organisations that can ensure that there are checks and balances? But also, how do we ensure that products and services are actually appropriate for the communities that, that they're serving? 
So I think it's all of those. And yeah, so hopefully some of this work that we'll be working over in the next three to five years will, will uncover some of those, those solutions and recommendations. I think there's a, a real need to focus on the behavioural science side of decision making. There's a report called Why Clouds Make Nerds Look Good. Great name, I haven't read it. <laughs> so it, look out here. the premise of the report is, is that admissions officers for universities favour athletic qualities on sunny days and they favour academic qualities on cloudy days. And there is real data behind this. You could go along one week and it's sunny and you've got brilliant grades and you wouldn't get in. You could go in the next week, same person, same qualities, and you would get in if it was cloudy. And that's the kind of, how do we design the system so that those kind of biases that most of us aren't even aware of this is the stuff that the big data companies can see happening in yeah. in their data that most mere mortals never even get sight of. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting point because, yeah, how do we design that out? Because, like you say, that is clearly not the best way to have an admissions policy. <laughs> but also thinking about those bigger organisations, like you say, they clearly can see that. So how do we ensure that data is used for good and, and technology is used for good and not for... So we were talking about the housing industry and obviously the illegal money lending and where there's a gap in the market, people step up and look for exploitations. How do we ensure that now as AI grows and this technology and all of our kind of automated decision making, that there isn't a bad actor that comes in and sees the gap and then starts exploiting people through that, that whole process. So I think there's definitely something around ensuring that there is a regulatory approach to what are the conditions for how a product or service is designed, regulated and, and tested. And, and what are the things that they need to go through to ensure that it has gone through a lived experience, co-creation um, and co-production type of process. So we can at least feel that we have done the best that we can do. And God knows what the robots will do on their own. <laughs> but we as humans have done the best that we can do. I'm very interested in the generative AI bots at the moment. And again, it worries me because they are very, very good. And up to a point, you can forget that it's a machine. And then it comes out with something that's clearly no human would ever say. And it worries me then, how are we enabling it to get its data sources? What are we training it on? Are we training biases into it? And how do we test for that? Exactly. And I think that's my point around making sure that you have representation in those sectors. Because if you have the same group of people who have the same way of thinking, the same experiences, the same backgrounds, you're designing for one set of the population. And therefore, those biases are just a byproduct. So I think the more that we can have diversity of thought, experience, characteristics, the more that we're going to be able to ensure that those biases are defined out and if they're not defined out, are captured and dealt with. I saw Holly Warner from Amplify Global talking about sociolinguistic theories at the FCA building and she spoke about audience design and the, the premise was that when, when you send out whatever it may be, let's, let's just say an electricity bill, the letter is written firstly for the legislation, secondly for the regulator, thirdly for the company's lawyers, fourth for the branding team, five for your boss, and the last person you think about in that letter is the customer. And that's why my mate Rappo down the pub doesn't know what you're going on about. I completely agree, and I think that's completely upside down. The customer and the client should be the first centric, and everything then should come out 
there's a kind of overlapping layer on top of that. But actually, if you think about the communications that people are getting on social media and WhatsApp, it's very client-centric. It's the complete opposite. They have no regulators. So their whole thought is around how can I connect with you and how can I get you to hear my message, feel my message, and then act on my message. And I think there are things that we can learn from that, but also thinking about the regulators themselves. I, I am hopeful of our consumer duty in the language, I have to say. I think there's something around ensuring that we as an advice sector take that on board as much as the creditor sector. I think there are, like you say, sometimes inherent biases in every sector. I'm not excluding the advice sector as part of that. I think we have to make sure that some of our advice organisations are also making sure that they're not funder-focused, regulator-focused, but are client-focused. And I'm, I'm hoping that, that consumer duty can help clarify that a little bit, but also in recognising that as a sector, we have resource and capacity issues as much as our clients do. And I think there has to be proportionality around how you see that change happen. But also, I think there are some good examples. And I think where those good examples are there, you should be able to, to come together and work collaboratively to think about how we can cross-pollinate some of those, those ideas and innovation that's happening. I think transparency is a theme that's come up a few times today. And it, it, it struck me when I spoke to CAF again around illegal money lending that she was saying there the SFS standard financial statement doesn't have a category for illegal money lending. You can't put it on there. And so well-meaning debt advisors will find a way to sort of hide it. And I guess that's the same as what we spoke about earlier today. And it does mask the problem. It doesn't prompt the conversation. So apart from the, the folks like yourself who are right at the front line of, of that conversation, the rest of us remain blissfully ignorant. I think it relates to the capacity and the, the training and the, the kind of resource issue as well. So, for example, if you are in at the front line of a debt advice organisation and you're seeing multiple clients who are in distress, you, you want to be able to give your client the quickest solution. And you also know that the creditor will come back and ask questions around if you're, you're open about those issues. It makes complete sense from a rational point of view for that debt advisor to put that figure elsewhere so that client can get peace of mind and get that sorted and then move on. So I think there's something around what happens in practice because advisors need to find solutions for their clients in a quick time frame. And then there are the responsibilities of organisations and managers and social policy and picking up that data and really understanding. And then you're going to have to have an organisation that just challenges that and says, actually, we're putting it on there will fight with you for three, four, five weeks until you accept it and recognise our client situation. So absolutely, I think there's a need for transparency, but I think there's also a need for a conversation around the SFS. Is it fit for purpose where we are, considering the, the kind of diversity in the communities that we're supporting, but also the complexity of need, considering that we've come out of nearly 10 years of austerity and obviously a pandemic and now a cost of living crisis. So I think there's something around what do we need to add to that document that informs creditors, but also ensures that advisors don't feel like they need to hide something. With consumer duty as well, I mean, we're talking at the moment around how debt management outcome data needs to be fed back into product design, say in retail banks, yeah. because you need to know what, how that product actually performed all the way through its life cycle. Yeah. 
But the customer journey now, now with the way that financial institutions are linked up with debt advice organisations, it feels like you almost need the regulator, the financial institution and the advice sector. That's a single customer journey. So if you're seeing that stuff on the front line, then it, it would make sense to feed back the outcome data into the financial institutions so that they can then go and test that against the data that they hold because otherwise they may have bias inherent in their processes that they're unaware of. I completely agree and I think that's one of the challenges that I see going forward because I think you can have that loop with organisations that have the innovation or are large enough to be able to kind of provide that data. My concern is when you've got very small organisations with one advisor in a generalist organisation providing all types of support. I think technology can help. So one of the areas that we're innovating is around actually building a platform that allows us as the debt advice organisation, the creditor and the client to be all under one ecosystem. And so if we can start to talk to each other, we're testing that at the moment and we're working with Elifinity as part of that. If we can start testing how that continual loop of information, consent, updates, works real time, there is no harm as to why we can't then share the outcome data at the end of it and actually use that as a feedback loop that goes straight to the banks and to the creditors. But I, yeah, I worry that small organisations will struggle to do that if they don't have that. But I think there is an opportunity to use technology to be able to facilitate that. I, I hadn't thought about that actually. I saw the Elephanty product. Um, spoke to Hoss Atri about it um, a, a while back now, as it goes maybe a year ago. So I saw saw it um, when it was when it when it was up and coming and. It, it looks like a, a, a really good way to connect up all the conversations that need to happen, but also still put in place the walls where they need to be in place. Absolutely. So we're proud to have been co-creating that product since 2020 wow. with Elifinity. So Jahanara, who's in the office today, who's our director of operations, has been working with the development team at Elifinity to really make it client-centric advisor-centric and also have the key outcomes of how do we provide data to the creditors, how do we ensure we get quick decisions from the creditors, but also how do we make sure that everything has a feedback loop and the agencies with the client. So they consent when we do a referral, they consent when we're able to kind of share data. But like you say, there are those barriers to ensure that nobody sees anybody else's data. And we're super excited because we think this is the way for us to be able to scale up some of our services but yet keep our community roots and ensure that we're able to kind of deliver the same quality of advice at a scale and to new customers like the big banks, like the big creditors who want to have that community approach but have never been able to engage with smaller organisations because the two systems just don't work with each other and the capacity is not there been doing a bit of testing on how well generative AI does at translating to other languages and actually it's pretty good. I've used the AI to translate from English into about 20 different languages now and then taken the output, put it into Google Translate and another translator called Deeple and then see what they tell me, what they think I put it in English in the first place. So you can, you can test that it was actually the same translation that went through. And the transcription services, so for example Google 
that can transcribe text-to-speech now, uh, and it's very, very accurate. If you could combine that with the translator, then effectively you could talk in English to somebody and they would get text on the screen in the language that they understand. And, and that would be transformative, because if you think about where often we are seeing clients with maybe 20 different language needs a week, and I have a very diverse team. We have lots of languages spoken within the team, but there's always obviously going to be need for translating. And you can use a telephone, you can use an in-person translator, but it's going through a third source. If you can get that documentation directly into somebody's hands in a language they can read and they can read it as a first source straight from you as the advisor to them, I think it would make such a big difference to people's not only understanding, but also their ability to take control of their own finances and not depend on somebody else. I did a, a webinar recently for the uh, Credit Services Association with a business called RecordShore, and they called out their product RegTech. But we were looking at it from the consumer duty point of view yeah. in the debt space. Effectively, what it can do is mine all of your call data and translate it to text. And then if you put in your parameters, it can tell you whether you've actually hit all of the things that you needed to hit. But of course, it can do it on 100% of calls, which is something that no organisation will, will generally ever be able to do. And of course, if you take a 10% sample, you might only find 1% overall that were in error. You're not getting enough data to have thematic reviews of what some of the issues may be, but with the technology, you can achieve that. And we're really excited by stuff like that. So some of the work that we're doing with Elephant is really using and enhancing that smart technology to make our advice more impactful make the, the work of our advisors more efficient so they're not spending time just doing administrative tasks. Actually, the, the technology is taking, stripping all of that out and they can focus on working with the clients one-to-one. Because -one. a big part, and, and, and what slightly annoys me is now we've, we've moved to an area where it's around debt advice and very regulated. Let's go back to my name, debt counselling, because that's what we do here. It might be on the tin, it says debt advice, but we're counselling people through vulnerable situations. So if we can get the advisors back, their time spent coaching, mentoring, counselling people through that process, as opposed to jumping through a million hoops to make sure that they've hit the regulatory tick boxes, I think it makes a huge difference. And technology can help with that, but also some of the work around working together to change systemic and some of those processes. You can achieve that, and I think there is absolutely some, some things that we're super excited about where technology can help, not just in terms of um, allowing clients to take more control of their, their own finances through translation, through transcripts, where you're able to kind of speak in one language, it comes out the other end in another. But also, I think there are also some concerns and making sure that you don't lose that human touch. And so I, I, when we were co-designing this, this system, it was very clear, and Mason and his team at Elefinti are also very committed to ensuring, actually, they're the infrastructure, but the value lies in the debt advisors and the ability to have that connection, and the value lies in that human connection. So if somebody, if somebody can self-help, great, and we can kind of support them from the back, making sure that then they've got access to all the information that they need, but if someone wants to talk to someone, that's also available and it's not automated and it's not AI and it's not a bot that's talking to you. But how do we provide that infrastructure where you have that human touch, but you also have the technology to make it fast, efficient 
uh, relevant um, because nowadays kids don't even want to talk on the phone like you were saying. <laughs> I can't get my niece and my uh, my nephews to come on the calls anymore. It's all on WhatsApp. Um, and yeah, just making sure that we're also going to where people are and what's important to them as part of that process. We've seen recently a rise in some of the, what I, I guess I would call challenger debt collection agencies who are digital by default, but they still have the, the human touch at the back. And I guess one of the things I've learned from, from testing some of the AI bots is that they're, they're very, very good on the surface, but you don't know when they've gone wrong if you don't know the topic. I tried it out the other day and, and said, I'm in debt to loads of people and, and I'm being taken to court. And it gave me some, some really solid advice. And then I said, but I lost my job due to COVID and it came back with that's a really tough situation and you, you you're sitting there and you have to remind yourself that it's been programmed to say that yeah it feels like such a natural fast response but it's not yeah and it comes back to that counseling point where you need a bit of motivation you need a bit of um, a sympathetic ear you need somebody to hear you to understand you and um, not just the technical information that's a completely different skill and I don't know, until they come up with a robot that can do that, I'm, I've not yet seen it. So, um, and it, that'd be quite scary, actually. So, <laughs> and, and, and that's the other thing, because it's like, then also, where people start to believe that, that's where exploitation can be ripe as well. And so, where you think you're talking to somebody who's sympathetic to your needs and is giving you the best advice, and then suddenly they, they ask you to hand over your bank account details, or they ask you to click a link here, yeah, it's very grey area. So, what next for Rooted Finance? What What are your short, medium, long, longer term plans? So, we're we're super excited. Obviously, we are very keen to continue supporting our communities in London. We're also working on ensuring that the advice that we provide obviously meets with Green Beauty. But one of the things that's been interesting to me as we've had those Green Beauty conversations is my team have been why has it taken this long because a lot of the stuff is how we work and and how we should work and so we're really pleased that that's been not only embraced but also actually it feels like very natural to what we're already doing and we're working with other organizations to support them through that process i think one of the things that i'm super excited around is our, our kind of systemic and structural inequalities work that we've started over the last couple of years so Obviously, we have 20 years of experience of delivering frontline services. Over the last few years, we've, we've taken a shift as the complexity of need and just the, the amount of issues that are burdening our clients has just built up and built up and built up. It has been a focus, strategic shift and focus on actually how do we work with them to start tackling some of those imbalances and some of those structural inequalities. So, the work we're doing with the Racial Justice Fund and building a racist alliance and financial empowerment alliance, I think it's going to be super exciting over the next few years. We're also very keen to ensure that there are marginalised communities coming into the advice sector and that lived experience is, is enhanced to people delivering advice. So we're working and are being funded by Propel Fund to develop a project where we're training people from marginalised communities to come into the advice sector and become debt advisors and welfare benefits advisors and it's called Grow Your Own Advice Project and we're really excited about that and yeah I think every year what motivates us at Rooted Finance is to have as much impact for our clients but also we're, we're kind of excited around 
um, moving to these areas. So obviously cover the whole of London at the moment and we're starting some projects that are, are kind of national focused and have a national impact. So yeah, absolutely watch. You'll have to come back, Steve. <laughs> yes, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's schedule another one for a year's time. Absolutely, absolutely. Is there anything that you wanted to touch on that we've not covered yet? I really want to reinforce and emphasize the need for not being afraid to ask questions. So I think one of the things that you said, Steve, was you're not familiar with the kind of needs of uh, diverse ethnic communities, but you're brave enough to admit that and you're, you're kind of open enough to say, actually, we should be having a conversation. I'd love more people to do that. And nobody's judging. It's totally non-judgmental. It's actually, we have a common purpose. We want to support the clients that are mutual clients. And so we're open to conversations. We provide training, we can provide consultation, we can provide support. And coming back to that theme of transparency, we're an open book, ask us some questions. So I think I want to reinforce that. I think the other thing to, to kind of also just reinforce and emphasize is these are really tough times for all the people that we're supporting. And the wider general public are also really anxious about their economic out, kind of outlook and futures. And I think we all have a responsibility to ensure that we're doing where, what we can, where we can, to work towards ensuring that people are uh, safer in their financial lives and futures, but also we're in a position to step up and ask difficult questions and challenging questions where we need to. Muni Yassin, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the podcast and I hope you found it as insightful as I did. If you want to hear more great content from Aram and Just, then please subscribe on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts or follow us on LinkedIn so that we can let you know when the next one is out. Until then, if you'd like to discuss any of the issues that were raised in this podcast, then please get in touch with me either through LinkedIn or drop me an email to stephen.coppard at aram.co.uk. Once again, my thanks to Muna Yassin MBE and Rooted Finance for investing the time to talk to us, and it's goodbye for now.